You founded the Contemporary American Theater Festival back in 1991 and have since grown it into one of the leading theater festivals on earth. An international travel magazine lists it as, and this is a quote, one of five performing arts festivals worldwide you must visit. The New York Times also lists it as one of the top summer festivals in the world. Every summer, the theater you started brings a national audience into this little West Virginia town and generates over $5 million of revenue for this little area of West Virginia. And the artistic impact of this is so great, so noteworthy, that a United States senator read reviews of the theater on the floor of the United States Senate so that it would be in the minutes forever. Yeah, it's and in it, the congressional record. It's in the yeah. congressional record. Oh, and you were recently inducted into the ranks of the College of Fellows of the American Theater by unanimous vote, which is an organization composed of some of the most famous theater practitioners in America, including... Edward Albee, Avery Brooks, Oscar Brockett, Paula Vogel, to name just a few who unanimously uh, wanted you as part of the ranks. Is, is all this more or less accurate? I, <laughs> you're, you're, um, I'm, I'm a little scared here. Um, I thank you for your kind words. But it's true. It appears to be. It yeah. is objectively true. Okay. Yeah. Listening to the Reinvention Podcast. I'm Aaron Anderson. Last week, the Contemporary American Theater Festival announced they were postponing their season to help stem the spread of COVID-19. The following interview was recorded last summer, and I had planned on releasing it to celebrate the opening of the new season. But instead, we'll release it to celebrate and share the compassion and creativity of its founder. Ed Herendine discusses why and how he founded what has become one of the most celebrated theater festivals in the world. Visit reinventionpodcast.com for transcripts and other free resources. So this is, uh, uh, you've probably done hundreds of interviews about the theater, about building this theater, right? Done a lot of interviews, yeah. yeah. I'd like, almost better than doing the theater. Well, anything second to doing the theater and making the theater and creating work, talking about it's fun. Yeah, um, but I'm most interested in your journey. So this this whole thing amazes me, just astonishes me. But what's even more astonishing is you didn't start out in theater, not really. No, no. I mean, I, I, does any of us? I mean, you know, I started out when, I guess it all depends on when you mean started out. Like, like probably yourself, I pretended a lot when I was a kid. Um, I did a lot of daydreaming. I did a lot of, um, you know, make-believe. Um, and I never really grew out of that. So when an opportunity came to start doing theater as an undergraduate, that sounded like a really cool thing to do. Right. I wasn't even sure when it started that you could like major in it. So when I found that out, it was like, wow, you can have this much fun. You can make believe. You can be pretending. You can create um, belief and and actually get credit for it and actually major in it. Then that was that was kind of exciting. That's now before you were you considered the priesthood. Um, yes, that's also true. I was um, in the seminary for six years. How, how old were you when that happened? I left home at 13 to um, go into the Carmelite Seminary. Had you uh, had you done theater before that? Mm -mm. So you went from seminary school to theater. I went from being in the seminary four years of, of high school to two years of college, but I went to Marquette University, and that's where I started in the theater. And and was there, like, how did that, how was that transition? Um, I guess I never really considered, when I left the seminary, um, 
I don't really think that I really changed vocations in many ways. The word vocation means a lot to me because I think I've come to understand it as to listening to the voice inside of yourself. You know, it's a Latin word, voco, which is a calling. And you also hear, you usually hear the word vocation in terms of religious life or, you know, if you want to call it the priesthood, um, where you have a calling to do something like that. But I think we all have a calling. And and, um, when I started to listen to the voice inside me, I knew that it felt like I wanted to do something that mattered. Um, I wanted to do something that would make a difference. Um, I wanted to rebel against things that I didn't agree about, you know. But I went to school at a really exciting time, you know, in 1972 when I started as an undergraduate. You know, the the world was in a very interesting place. We were in Vietnam. Um, there was a lot of protest on college campuses. Kent State had happened um, like the year before, I think. So we were all very um, aware of what was going on, both in our country and on our campuses. Um, so we were all, I, I was with students that wanted to make a difference in the world. And um, one thing led to another. And when I, I, I was asked to be in a play as an extra, you know, somebody just said, do this. And I did it. And I knew that I'd never be an actor, but I got to hang out with theater people. And then I started to take classes. And that's when I started to get turned on. But I was also at a Jesuit university. So the values of literature and theology and philosophy were really um, a part of my education. And that foundation that happened to me as an undergraduate has really um, sort of cemented my interest in wanting to analyze scripts, in wanting to um, love literature and debate literature and argue about um, literature and works and themes and philosophy, trying to question, you know, the meaning in life. So reading Sartre and Camus as an undergraduate really turned me on. So those were exciting years in growing up. And I started my first theater in junior year of college called the Alternative Theater. So what I'm hearing you say, because one of the things that's interesting to me about this theater is that it's so, uh, it reveres the playwright. So very much. You revere the playwright so very much. I've been, I've worked in some theaters where, you know, these words, the actor doesn't, let's change the words. That is not a thing that happens here. Oh, you can. I mean, the contract won't allow it. But um, the the playwright or the primary artist, because we've done a couple of things where, um, you know, we've done productions that didn't actually have a playwright, but had a primary artist who was creating work. So in most cases, when you're talking about our festival, um, it's usually the playwright. Yes. Right, and but and, you're, and and what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing is that the the spirit of this place it was in you long before uh, this idea that you know making work that matters in the world. Yeah, that that somewhere came. You know, I think it really um, started to take hold as an undergraduate. Um, you know, with the Jesuits. You know, I had extraordinary teachers and and. Um, you know, I was very lucky to be um, where I was in the early 70s um, because all of that that was happening in the world and happening in our country at that time um, has certainly, you bring to the work who you are, um, that has certainly been a part of the foundation that I have as an undergraduate. And then that um, got more specialized as I went into graduate school and, and focused on directing. Um, I really fell in love with storytelling and really believe that the vocation that I have um, is is telling stories and, and, and the theater and using the theater to express. It was the best way 
I think I discovered that I could express myself and the need I had to listen to my voice and to bring my voice out was um, by creating stories, um, plays, and um, telling those stories live on stage. And graduate school then then only enhanced that, and, and, and it was a blast. Plus, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I do you remember? Do you remember the moment when you thought, oh, "This is this is my calling. This is my vocation." Probably, I mean, for sure, choosing to go to graduate school is a serious step. Right. I guess thinking about it right now on the spot. I've thought about this before. Um, if I could have stayed in graduate school my whole life, I would have. You know, right? Because I mean, right. there was nothing better than you know, eat, sleep, drink, do one thing: think theater. You know, you got just enough money on an assi- graduate assistantship that you could pay rent and buy enough food, and you spent your day talking about theater. You're in classes, working with designers, having you know all different you know Greek theater, da 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 da, English, you know, reading plays, reading new plays, directing plays, which is you what know. you do now. Yeah, yeah, but being in that culture for three years was really great. So um, at w- what point did you think, I think I'll start a theater? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I I don't think I ever really thought about that that much. Um, it, it, it actually took the opportunity, you know, that um, when I was asked to start this theater, um, then I just said yes. I didn't know anything about starting the theater. I didn't know anything about budgets and raising money. I knew how to direct plays. And so directing plays was my passion. And I learned at Ohio University when I was in graduate school that directing new plays with the living playwright was something that I really, really wanted to do. And one of the ways to do that was if you started your own theater and you dedicated it to just doing new plays, then you would be working with the living playwright all the time. And that really um, excited me. So when the opportunity came and I was asked if I would do it, I said yes. And that was here. You came. You came here to talk about. They wanted you to build a Shakespeare theater. Well, my guess was that they didn't know what they wanted. They wanted an equity theater during the summer. Who was they? That was the university. That was then the Shepherd, college. Shepherd, yeah, Shepherd College. And it was then called Shepherd College. And um, we talked about that a little bit. But they said, well, what? kind of theater should we do? Well, how did, did they find run? you? Let's back up. How did they... Um, I was up at the Williamstown Theater Festival, okay. and, and I think that, you know, Dow Benedict was a dean here, and he knew about me, so somehow my name came to them. And they said, will you come talk to us about... Yeah. And, and And how was that conversation like? It was like a three-day conversation um, about what it takes to have an equity contract, what you do, what, you know. And then when we got around to the kind of work that, what should you do, I, I just said, well, you know, one thing... And I think they wanted to do, well, what would we do if we had a Shakespeare theater during the summer? And I talked a lot about how many contracts there are in Shakespeare plays. There's a lot of big cast. Because right. I know the one thing we knew they wanted was equity theater. They wanted a professional theater. And um, so I, and, and I knew that Michael Kahn was coming to D.C. I said, there's a, a living legend is going to create one of the best Shakespeare companies in the world. Just down the road from here. Just 70 miles away from here. So um, they said, well, what do you think we should do? And I said, Especially then, there was a critical need for new work, fully produced new work, new work that got full productions as opposed to workshops and readings. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know, why don't you consider um, doing um, new work, doing contemporary theater? And then they said, why don't you do it? And I said, are you offering me a job? And they said, yes, when can you start? And I said, "Um, okay, I'll do it. Was that a hard decision? Um, I don't think I thought about it that much. Um, you know, you have to realize um, I was pretty idealistic. I don't know how serious I thought the whole thing was going to be, um, but I was enthusiastic to give it a try. 
Could could you ever have imagined then that that conversation would lead to this? Um, This is going to sound really weird. Um, Once I had, you know, by coming down here and seeing the geographical location of Shepherdstown and how close it was to one of the largest metropolitan um, regions in the country, the Washington, D.C., Baltimore metro region, there are millions and millions and millions of people that um, live here less than between 30 and 50 miles away from here. Um, And having worked at the Williamstown Theater Festival for three years, which is even further away from New York City and Boston, um, this seemed like a no-brainer that this beautiful little historic town on the Potomac River with its historical buildings that date back to the 1600s, um, that it would be a no-brainer. Why wouldn't this be? And it was an incredibly progressive town. And, uh, and already, even then. Yeah, even then. And already a cultural destination for Civil War history buffs and people like that. Antietam is just around the corner. Yeah, yeah, it's like 10 miles away. Right. And Harpers Ferry is 10 miles away right. down the other end of the river. So um, it seemed like, well, this would be a perfect place for a summer destination theater. In terms of the, the size, so uh, no one who's listening to this will be able to see what this is. Can you describe briefly where we are, like the campus? Uh, yeah, yeah, we're on the um, right across the bridge from Maryland, literally, and we're on the banks of the Potomac River. And as you look towards the um, west, you see the Appalachian Mountains. And as you look towards the southwest, you see the Blue Ridge. Um, we're in the Shenandoah Valley, where the Potomac River and the Shenandoah Valley meet at Harper's Ferry. We're just about eight miles from there. So we're in the beautiful foothills of what they call the Potomac region or the Shenandoah Valley, the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountain. So it's very pretty. It's very magical. Um, and it's the oldest town in the state of West Virginia, and we like to say doing the newest plays in America. And and the buildings that we're in yeah. are these these beautiful they, – they have this architectural feature where they look – they blend into the mountains. Um, our, our new buildings, the Center yeah. for Contemporary Art. Um, they're skinned in copper, right? Which patinas, and the roof lines are are, are um, designed um, as you look at the view of the Blue Ridge Mountains. So they're swerved or curved like a mountain range, and within the next several years, they're going to patina to that blue green thing. So they'll have a, the outside of the buildings will eventually look like the blue. And green we're mountain. in one of two buildings that are also going to be part of a third. Uh, yeah, there'll be a third. You're, you're going to build a whole city here eventually. Yeah. Did you know? Uh, way back then that you would be building? That came about in our in our 10th year, um, we did a strategic plan, a 10-year strategic plan. And at that time, um, I determined, because we knew we were doing rep, we, and we took over an old gym. So we had some facilities that if, in order for us to really grow and do the kind of work that we were interested in doing, which was more than four plays in rotating, we wanted to do six plays in rotating rep. We knew we would need, ultimately need, state-of-the-art facilities. So so a big part of your job then is fundraising and meeting and all that sort of stuff. How did you learn how to do all that stuff? Um, I don't know. I don't know if, uh, if I've learned it yet. Um, well, you're, you're doing fairly yeah, well for a novice. I, I, and maybe that's good. Um, maybe because I didn't know anything about it, when I would be with a potential donor, and I think of the early ones, um, all I had to do was talk about what the dream was, what the vision was, um, talk passionately, which was easy to do, about the vision for um, the theater festival and what we wanted to do and 
we wanted to create the future of literature for the American stage. I could say that. We wanted to create the future of the American theater in the summer in Shepherdstown. I could say that. I could speak that authentically and honestly. Um, and people listened, and, and it blows my mind that they then helped, and, and we started raising money together. So I, I don't know if I'd ever had a course in that, if I would have been as good as I am, because, and I'm not saying I'm good, but for some reason people believed in what the dream was that we were establishing here, and they began to support it. Now, it's, you know, it's, it, it's difficult to, to raise money, but I think if you're honest and you're you have something to say, there's people out there that will listen. I think I think it may be the clarity of your dream. I mean, honestly, yeah, I come, we kept I, it simple. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, every every season you give a you give a talk, and every season I drive up here sometimes just to hear you talk. That's very nice. Well, but it's because of the clarity of what the, your mission is, what you're what you're building here. And did did you know that from the very beginning that this is what you wanted? To yeah, do? I mean, once once I said that I was going to do this, and it was, and we. I came up, we came up, I came up with the name the Contemporary American Theater Festival. Then the question was, what? what's the mission? And we had more words around it in those days until we really solidified it to what the mission is today and what it's been for, you know, 20-something years now. We're dedicated to producing and developing new American theater, period. That's it. That's who we are and what we do. So having such a narrowly focused vision makes it actually easier as long as you don't water down the soup and try to do more than that, as long as you know what you're doing, which is to do new American plays, to do new American work, to do work that's immediate and present and relevant and now, um, that drives everything, every decision that we have to make. And so we don't get knocked off course because right. we, are, we are true. And I really think it's the simple, you know, every artist knows this. We don't always follow it. But less is more. So we have one mission, to produce and develop new American theater. We have core values to tell diverse stories, you know, to create a ever-evolving relationship between the audience, the artist, and the work. Um, um, to produce daring, bold, daring new work. Um, that, those are our core values. And as long as we're true to that, um, we can't get sidetracked um, and knocked off course because that's all we do. Um, so I just got a couple more questions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one, what what's the thing that surprises you most or has surprised you most about this journey from that moment that they said, would you start a theater to this campus and this sort of juggernaut that it is? Well, I, I was just talking about this the other day, too. You know, I I feel very fortunate and sometimes like an imposter, you know, that Something as simple as I make believe, you can actually make a living making believe, and that I can go to work every day and have as much fun as I'm having. I'm almost afraid to sort of put words to that out loud because I don't want that to change. You know, we all know the sacrifices that that the um, artists um, do. We all know what those are, but the fact that I get to do um, what I want to do. It's never boring. Sure, it's hard work and it's challenging. So I have to pinch myself to say, I, I guess I'm surprised at how much fun it has continued to be. And um, 
What about challenges? What's been the biggest challenges going forward to this point? Yeah. Well, of course, you hit it. I mean, funding is a big challenge. State funding, you know, um, government funding, writing grants and national foundations, you know. Um, you always have to stay ahead of that, maintaining um, th- such a um, strong and vibrant and professional relationship with our biggest benefactor, which is the university. That is a must be maintained at all times. You know, I think I'm on the fourth president, but you can never be asleep at the wheel because that relationship has to be constantly monitored and maintained and listened to, and you have to be aware of that. Um, because they're our most important benefactor. They're our host. You know, they provide, you know, the opportunity for us to create this work in these buildings and these facilities. So we don't have to worry about the infrastructure that's here because that's our partner's job. We get to work on creating the plays and bringing in the artist here every year, and that's our job. So um, that's a challenge. You you, you never want to not be maintaining that relationship. And you you got to... Um, you got to pay attention to the to the atmosphere in the funding world. Um, you have to pay when when it looked like a, this most recent administration was threatening to shut down the NEA. That's happened almost every year since. You know the NEA is you know it goes through many swings, but when it was looked like they were threatening to you know shut down the NEA completely, we decided we would do more art, not less. That's when we went. That's what finally propelled us to go to six plays. It was like no. We will not cut our budget. We will not cut the amount of work that we'll do. We will do more work, and that turned out to be a good decision. That's the sort of the uh, the rebellious part of you that you had even as a kid. It, it may be, yeah. I mean, and but it each play brings its own challenges. You know, each season has its own challenges, and I guess that's what drives us. Though it drives you, it drives all of us in theater. And sometimes we don't know what the challenges are until we get in there and go, "Oh my goodness." Um, yeah, how, that's the, how are we going to solve that problem? But that's that's, the fun that's of it. part of the fun. Yeah, yeah, it's the fun of it. Yeah, yeah you, you you never want the challenges to be the kind of thing that's you know overwhelming you. But but I think challenges um, actually there's a creative solution to especially in the work that we do. I believe there's always a solution. Now that may be true in all jobs, but definitely in in this world of theater. There, there's always a solution to the challenges. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's freedom and form and all that sort of stuff, the restrictions. Yeah. So last question. Thank you for your time. Uh, cool. The last question. Um, so bearing in mind that, you know, two or three people who might listen to this who are trying to figure out where to go now, right? They've been following their dreams. They've been, they've been doing this and maybe they want to uh, make a difference. They want to change something. You know, what, what would you tell them or, or – if you could go back in time and give young Ed advice, you know, what would you tell yourself? Yeah, those, those are good questions. You know, I mean, even as I think about it, um, this is just going to sound like, but it's you got to listen to what your voice is telling you, you know, and and when you're and I, I really do believe, and this isn't easy to do, and when I've not done it is when I've regretted not doing it, is. You've got to, at least I have been fortunate when I listen to my intuition and I trust what my intuition is telling me, it usually leads me in the right direction, whether that's making a choice about what to do with a play or who to hire or what the next steps are in career. 
Um, it's really sort of being available and, and listening to your intuition because somebody somewhere said that I steal all the time is that our intuition is perfect. But we put a lot of distractions in the way of that. I don't know if I have an answer about how you listen to your intuition. I think everybody's got to find their own way about how to really listen. And um, when you are in a place where you can listen, I think that helps me anyways decide, oh, who am I going to hire or what's the next step, what's next season? You know, because I never know. We work in a profession where by uh, Monday, literally in the next five days, Everything you see is going to go away. The stage will be wiped clean. All three venues will be emptied. All the props will be returned. We will recycle a lot of the lumber and steel, and the rest of it will be taken to the landfill. Everybody, all these artists will go away. So within a week from today, there'll be nothing that showed that we were here other than photographs, or if you... I like to talk about Twyla Tharp's book, where she talks about going into the dance studio and looking at the skid marks on the floor from former dance rehearsals and dances. And, and those skid marks are a memory of all the work that she's created um, on that Marley, you know. And she can look at certain skid marks and know, oh, that was that. that. Well, that's kind of all we have left at the end is an empty stage, three empty stages where all these plays, you know, in the past 29 years have been, or at least in this past season. And those memories will haunt us. But it's really paying attention to that intuition and to yourself as to what those next steps would be. And and if you, I'm talking to people that are looking to reinvent their life, I'm not one to give advice because I don't think I was ever practical in any way with any choice I ever made. And it's kind of like I'm doing a play right now with Einstein and Abraham Flexner, and Flexner's the pragmatist, and Einstein was the dreamer, and you see the conflict that they have with each other, and that just shows us that that conflict is, is constantly, you know, there's probably a lot of practical reasons for why you should or should not reinvent your life. Um, but I would be the wrong one to ask advice of that because um, this sounds so follow your dream if you have one. And if you don't have one, get one. Maybe people will be rolling their eyes. And maybe we, I should be more practical, you know, um, you know, because money sings, talks, and dances. You know, you, you have to have some way of surviving in this world. So I don't know if I'm a good one. To, and I guess, I guess I don't look too—because it's theater and it's make-believe, I'm always looking forward and, and knowing how important the past is. Um, but I never look too far into the future because I'm just looking at what the next project's going to be, and then I'll be focused on that. And I'm lucky enough that this is a job that every single year there's a new project coming. I don't know what that's going to be like when it's over in that sense, and I don't have a project to look forward to. I'm probably going to have to listen to one of these podcasts and find out. <laughs> I don't think, you know, you know what, though? I have one more question. Yeah. I just realized this. Because <clears throat> when I work with you, you're one of my favorite directors ever. Thank you. Right? But this is why. When you're on stage, it's a problem, right? This moment, how do we create this moment? But you're very present in that moment, right? That's, that's the whole thing. You're trying to get that moment right. And you will ask everybody. You'll ask anyone, what does this look like? Is this okay? What would you? And it doesn't matter where it comes from. You're looking for 
not the right answer, but the answer that will bring us the most truth in that moment. That's great. That's good. Yeah. I mean, is that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's really great. Yeah. That, and that's what I think draws people to you. And that's what draws me to you. I know that right. that's true. Well, I mean, it's collaborative art form. So you might as well make use of the, all the experts in the room. But this goes to this question. So this is my last question. I promise. There's this so is, many last questions. I know. It's crazy. You said you don't know how to trust your intuition, right? You, you know that oh, you do it. I know that you have to trust You have to, it. but yeah. you don't know exactly. And if you don't, that's usually what gets me into. And this is the yeah. same thing when you're creating a moment on stage. Stage, what's the the right thing is the right thing. That's, yeah. it's, once it happens, it's you clear. Know it. Yeah. How you do know. you know it? it? It just feels right. You know, you see it happen. It's like casting. You know, I, I believe that directing plays, 90-something percent of it is casting. If you cast the right people and hire the right designers, you can get out of their, get way. Out of their way. You know, you, you now just create the atmosphere of trust and creativity, and, and we're all going to do something together. Edda, thank you for your time. Thank you for asking me. It's always nice to talk. Oh, Aaron, thanks, man. This was fun. Was it? Thank you, man. Visit reinventionpodcast.com for transcripts and other free resources.